This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Caesar from Act 2, Scene 3 of Julius Caesar, read by our guest this week. He has been described as one of the great Shakespeareans of his generation. He spent 35 years with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the last 10 as artistic director. His directing highlights include King Lear, starring Anthony Sher, The Tempest, starring Simon Russell Beale, and his world-renowned production of Julius Caesar for the World Shakespeare Festival. In 2021, he directed the Henry VI Part I open rehearsal project, which for the first time invited audiences to observe the RSC's full rehearsal process. In 2016, he took the company to mainland China for the first time, and in 2012, he directed David Tennant in Richard II, the first RSC production to be broadcast live in cinemas. He's won an Olivier Award, a Sam Wanamaker Award from Shakespeare's Globe, and received numerous honorary doctorates. In 2023, as Artistic Director Emeritus, he will direct Cymbeline, his 50th production for the RSC. It is my great pleasure to welcome Greg Doran. Greg, welcome to Speak the Speech. James, thank you very much. It's very nice to be with you. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, Greg. Thank you so much. And can you please tell me why this passage from Julius Caesar is so special for you, so important for you? Well, you know, my late husband, Anthony Schur, was a great South African um, and involved me from the, the first part of our, our relationship in the, the battle, still apartheid days, in in the, the, the struggle against apartheid. Um, mm. And we, I joined the RSC in 1987 and I was in a production of Merchant of Venice, which uh, right. Tony was playing Shylock. And I remember a very specific moment in that production it, being Stratford the birthday performance is a very particular thing every year and right. yeah. it has yeah. been for you know let's say over a century and mm -hmm. it came to a point where all the uh, ambassadors and cultural attaches who were attached to the court of St. James were mm. invited automatically to come to Stratford to, to walk around the town and present, you know, mm. wreaths and Shakespeare's grave and unfurl um, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. flags and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And it, it, this tells you something when, if you look on the Pathé News in, back in the 1930s, um, um, there is a moment when, of all the flags unfurled down Bridge Street, one of them is the swastika. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because Austria yeah. has been uh, invaded by Hitler and, you know, yeah, and, and so Stratford wasn't necessarily particularly discerning about <laughs> who it did. No. Um, and, <laughs> um, and in 1987, the cultural attaché from, from South Africa representing the apartheid regime was present mm. at that performance. Mm. And um, 
Tony uh, and quite a few of the actors. There were a number of black actors in the in the in the company. There were a number of uh, South African actors in the company, and mm. all of us felt very uh, sort of angry about the presence of the cultural yeah. culture that we were performing to. And there were talks about boycotting the performance. And um, mm. ultimately, mm. what happened was we we went ahead with the performance and let the Shakespeare speak for itself. So right. when mm. Hakim K. Kazim strode forward as the Prince of Morocco, he We'd worked out where the cultural attack was sitting, <laughs> and he beaded him in the eye and said, Miss likely yeah. not for my complexion. Mm. And, and then mm. later in the trial scene, um, Shylock grabbed one of the court attendants called Akim Mogaji, um, pulled him to the front of the stage and basically shook him at the South African cultural attaché mm. and said mm -hmm. the, the speech, you have among you many a purchased slave, which like your mm. asses and you, your mules, you, um, and it, the, the, the effect is you have, you, you, you use your slaves, you, you've bought them so you think you can do what you want with them. I have mm. the same right to my pound of flesh. And it was, yeah. and uh, it, yeah. the scene crackled with sort of, Political static, if you Amazing. Amazing. So the play, yeah. so while, so at the beginning of our relationship, uh, uh, Tony and I became involved in the apartheid struggle and met a man called Sonny Venkaratnam, who had been on Robin Island oh. with with yeah. with Mandela. Mandela, yeah. And he um, he he brought to Stratford. Um, his copy of Shakespeare that he had had on Robin Island. Um, and it had been signed by Mandela, and many of the ANC inmates had signed this copy. Um, yeah, yeah. And among them, the, the quotations that, that the inmates picked describe the whole spectrum of, of the apartheid regime in a way. Yeah, so that yeah. Walter Sisulu had, had underlined Shylock's lines, for sufferance is the badge of all our tribe. Whereas um, Billy Nairn described Caliban's line, this island's mine by Sycorax, my mother. So between those two, there was a sort of... Anyway, Mandela signed the lines that I spoke, the, the cowards die many times before their deaths. And he not only signed it, but he also dated it. And the date that he had chosen um, is now called Reconciliation Day in South Africa, right. but, but had been um, Dingan's Day, and it had celebrated, it was the day, the Fuertrekker's victory over the Zulus at the Battle of Blood River. Um, yeah. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a contentious day of division, in a, in a way, mm -hmm. in South Africa. But it was also the day where Nkomtowe Sizwe, the, the armed wing of the ANC in the early 60s, it was the day they chose to up the campaign and use violence and, and, and bombing. Right. Um, and, mm. and, and that is indeed ultimately what landed Mandela in prison. So right. the yeah. speech has so many different resonances as a result mm. of that, uh, of courage to do what is right and despite the fact that there are threats, as it were, to it. Yes, um, yes. So I find I just found the speech and Mandela's conversation about it qu quite extraordinary. I then met Mandela um, with, with Tony some years later, but I was oh. so, I, I would love to say that I had a deep conversation with him about that speech, but <laughs> I felt so completely overwhelmed by yeah. seeing this great man, I think I just gibbered for about, you know, yeah. five minutes. Like, it should be a better story than it is, James. Um, yeah, and then it became the basis of your major production many years later in 2012 of yeah. Julius Caesar, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and 
it it had just it struck me how Julius Caesar, John Carney, the great South African actor, John Carney, an uh, actor and activist. I said to him, why is Julius Caesar so popular in Africa? It's one of the plays that was translated by uh, Julius Nyerere, who was the first president of Tanzania, uh, or Tanganyika, mm. uh, as was. And he had translated it there. It had been translated into Tswana. It had been t- translated into so many African languages. Mm. Mm. Um, and it felt as though it was a play that spoke specifically in some ways to that continent. And and John just put it very simply. He said it's Shakespeare's African play. And I thought, well, that's great because at the RSC, I, we have always pioneered diverse casting and you know casting from what we now call the global majority we we had reached that you know the whole of the othello argument about you know why are there no black actors playing othello this is back in the in the late 80s and early 90s and the the argument is oh there aren't any black actors who are ready to play the part well rubbish Mm. actually Mm. let's play the part they're never going to you know Mm. we're never going to have those uh, actors with that experience but by the time I got to 2012, there were so many really brilliant and are so many really brilliant actors from that particular community. And mm. I thought, well, let's let's test this idea. Does this play have a different kind of resonance if you do it in a contemporary African setting? And yeah. somehow, if you do it in, in, in modern dress in a sort of Western context, the danger is that it can seem as if... It's just about sort of, you know, knocking off a particularly cantankerous chairman of the board or something. Yeah, or political leader or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. though, it doesn't have, I don't know, maybe those kind of mythic resonances. You know, mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. all the talking about lions walking in the streets and the soothsayers and yeah. the, yeah. the sort of yeah. that had a That just seemed to fit into that world in a... In a in an extraordinary way. So it was, but it had all come from Sonny Venkrat and I'm showing us that extraordinary copy of, of, of Shakespeare, which as it happened was exactly the same copy of Shakespeare that, that Tony had, you know, on his own shelves as a schoolboy in really <laughs> it was the Collins version. But yeah. Sonny's wife, in order to get it smuggled into the prison in Robin Island, had covered it mm. with Diwali cards. So. Diwali stickers, yeah, right. So, yeah. so it was, I, I love the idea of sort of Shakespeare being protected by sort of Rama and Sita. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I remember seeing it, I, I remember seeing it in, in 2012, it was at the British Museum. It was the last exhibit That's you right. saw as as you left um, that that Shakespeare that big Shakespeare exhibit they did in 2012 it was very moving, very powerful. They opened it to that page. That's right. Um, it was extraordinary. I, I love the idea that it's Shakespeare's African play. I I read somewhere that the Youth League of the ANC actually ended its manifesto in the 1940s with "The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings." So so so, <laughs> so you know that that idea of um, self determination and um, and and moving forward under your own steam, under your own power. Um, it was a very powerful production. I was very fortunate. I got to see it when, as it transferred to the West End in 2012. I was there. It was extraordinary. Oh, and it was unbelievable. And then and then it went, it did a big world tour, didn't it? Did it didn't it travel? Yes, we, went, we even went to Ohio. 
<laughs> how'd they, how'd they take it in Ohio? I'm sorry, I'm sorry Ohio. I don't mean that. That's no, we had a relationship with with Ohio uh, State University, and uh, wow. um, uh, but yeah, it went to to the Brooklyn Academy of Music in in Brooklyn in mm. New York, yeah. and uh, mm. yeah, it was. We wanted to take it back to South Africa um, uh, uh, mm. as, as well, but it was just in as as always. It's 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 the money that finally. Um, of course, of course mm. these things or not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, you already had a, a history of of going to South Africa, creating theatre back in 1994. You and Tony went, and you you wrote a book about it. Was a Shakespeare and went to the Market Theatre, did a Titus Andronicus, and what was that experience like? Emerging from apartheid, how, you know, the, the country just kind of shaking off the effects of apartheid. It was one of the best experiences of my life. I have to be uh, honest about that. It was, uh, it was, mm-hmm. it was tricky because we were Tony and I were working together. We'd been partners for a, a while by that point, but it was the first time yeah. we were working together as director and actor, and mm. we hadn't sorted out the ground rules for, for doing. <laughs> and so there was a moment when we were put up in a very nice little house, but basically mm. in a fortress up in uh, Zantam, one of the northern suburbs of Joburg. And we, you mm. became aware, because of the level of security, of the fact that you were then in sort of the murder capital of the world, you know, yeah. and, mm. and it was mm. it was, it was was nerve-wracking to get used to that. Um, and we'd get home in the evening, and I would want to sit in the garden and listen to the wonderful Hadidas, the Ibis that sang in the evening. And Tony would go, oh, yeah, but what about that bit in Act 3, Scene 3? And, yeah. yeah. He wanted to talk shop. Yeah. And I'd go, can you just stop talking about it? And he wouldn't. And eventually I had to throw a plate at him. So um, I threw my threw my dinner across the table, and um, and from that point on, we 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 learnt those ground rules. In I don't think otherwise we would have done as many productions together as we did. But it you collaborated so often uh, across the years: Death of a Salesman, Henry the Fourth, King Lear, extraordinary. Yeah, it was well. It was a wonderful thing to be able to do. I mean. Without the ground rules, the danger was that you sort of lost your best friend for, you know, a period of time. Yeah. You couldn't go home at the end of rehearsals and go, oh, you know, today's rehearsal was terrible or you had a great rehearsal yeah. day or you, you lost that. But what you gained was a sort of, uh, well, he was an astonishing man. I mean, he 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 mm. would really push. He would really challenge. He had a great love of Shakespeare, but it was hard won. He wouldn't just take it automatically on tick that he was mm. this was the greatest writer you know in the world yeah. and and would challenge also the way it was acted and the, the honesty and the truth and the rigor with which it was rehearsed and mm. and it was mm. just an amazing experience to be examining that play uh, mm. you know Titus Andronicus and and Titus is a play which can seem to be sort of gratuitously violent but mm. in a country that had just endured 40 years of, of the apartheid regime and a country that had invented necklacing, you know, the, the process of mm. putting a, a rubber tire mm. over somebody's head and setting it to light, you know. We, I remember the, the, the sense that we had to honour the violence that's in a way. And, yeah. and we yeah. went, you know, if you, if you would direct that play 
here in England, you know, generally people's experience of violence doesn't go much further than somebody knowing somebody who was mugged once or whatever. Yeah. And in South Africa, I remember the actress playing Lavinia coming up to us on the first day and saying, oh, I've done some research because Tony, of course, you know, was a great one for research and, and had inspired yeah. her to do this. And Lavinia, in the course of the play, has her hands cut out cut off and her tongue cut out yeah. and this girl had spoken to people who had had their hands chopped off oh, and how yeah. they how they lived with that yeah. and and also had met people who had had their tongues cut out oh, so it was yeah. a you know it was an experience of you know, around the circle people who had somebody whose whose grandmother's house had been broken into and she had been murdered in her bed and the police had shown yeah. the photographs so you couldn't make the violence comedic it somehow no, no so the play the play kind of transformed into being like marcus andronicus says at the end when he says tie the scattered corn into one mutual sheaf it was a play about reconciliation suddenly not about mm, mm, violence. Mm, I, I found that very extraordinary it's just that's the way that shakespeare shakespeare somehow has a way of yeah. as, as of what we've often said of of you know he's like a magnet that attracts all the iron filings of what's going on in the world you don't have to make him resonant or relevant he will be and you just got to and sometimes the danger is if you've thought, oh, this play is about this and and applied a concept to reveal that, you'll find yeah. that actually a great classic is a great classic because it speaks for now anyway. That's right. You directed this year a, a production of Richard III starring Arthur Hughes. And for the first time, uh, Royal Shakespeare Company has an actor who has a disability playing Richard III. Um, that's never happened before. And we had that. We we did that at, at Bell Shakespeare a few years ago. Kate Mulvaney, who has scoliosis, and she actually said when she saw Richard's spine in Leicester, she yeah. realised, oh my God, that's that's my exact spine. And so this is a very powerful thing for that actor with that lived experience to actually present that performance. What did you realise was was different about this production than previous ones of Richard III that you've seen? It was an interesting moment because I brought uh, Arthur up to the house here, the, the artistic director's house here in, in Stratford, before we started rehearsal. And uh, there was this elephant, elephant in the room, which, which was yeah. uh, Tony Sher had famously played Richard III, obviously. 1984, very famous production. Yeah. And and I think every actor who's played Richard III since then has probably read Year of the King. Uh, it's still a yep. you know, nearly 40 years later. Um, yeah. <laughs> Arthur wasn't even born when Tony played the, the <laughs> role. And, and and yet he was he had been reading Year of the King. And um, of course. <laughs> when Tony died last year, I... My diet had taken compassionate leave from the company and we spent the very few months we had, we sorted his archive and one mm. of the things we did, when he when he came over from South Africa as a 19, shy 19 year old in, in 1968, he had brought with him a kind of a, a cabin trunk um, uh, on board and he had, he had, that had been something that he kept all his stuff in as he, as he worked around the reps in, in his early days as an actor and so mm. we filled that very trunk with all the scripts of his 50 year career, you know, from Mm. 
The History Man, Mrs. Brown, Primo, all the Shakespeare's he had done at Stratford. And sitting in the corner of the trunk was his script for Richard III. And Arthur said, oh, my God, is that his script? Can I look at it? And I said, Arthur, it's not holy writ. You know, this is <laughs> this is just... <laughs> and, and, but it, it had all the drawings and the margins and the underlinings of, of, of all the speeches. I said to him, look, hold it, read it, you know, smell it, sniff it, whatever you need to do. But on the basis that... We agree that, that that no performance of a Shakespeare play or as a Shakespeare role can ever be definitive because you, definitive, you've right, got to do right. it in the moment now as to what it means. Mm. You know, we made that 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 agreement, and what Arthur brought. You know, in, in fact, one of the crutches that Tony had used was was also there in the in the room. Wow. He said, "Can I can I try one of these crutches?" And I said, "This is a really this is really weird and ironic <laughs> because here you are, somebody who has." Unlike most actors who've played Richard III, you don't have to do any research as to what the disability is because you Absolutely. haven't lived with it yeah. since you were born. And Arthur mm-hmm. has radial dysplasia in his in his right arm. And what he brought to it was just, A, that lived experience, but also a sense of always having been underestimated in his life. Um, mm. He told me a story about mm. being a student, a drama student in Cardiff, and one night coming home late and rounding the corner and being faced with a group of five young lads who were clearly out spoiling for a fight. And Arthur kind of braces himself. He used to keep his hands in his pockets. Suddenly he kind of get, gets his hand out and hands out ready to you know, whatever is coming. And um, one of them said, oh, lads, he's got a funny hand, let's leave him. And and Arthur said he was, their threat scared him, mm-hmm. but their pity infuriated him. Infuriated. <laughs> and, and so he was quite, yeah. he really wanted them to fight, you know, so he could show what <laughs> he was made of. And I think <laughs> his, his sense of, of Richard as... Somebody who has been overlooked, who has been underestimated, sort of fueled his performance in 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 many ways. And of course, when when those characters hurl those terrible insults at that man, they're not hurling it at a prosthetic. They're hurling mm. it at somebody who is who has yeah. lived with with yeah. those insults and and that prejudice all his all his life. So it did yeah. shift the. The sort of meaning of the of the play in a in a quite a profound way, I think. And that must have, that must have been a tricky path to navigate in the rehearsal room because, you know, the word deformity gets thrown around in in that play, and uh, you know, obviously it's in the play, but it would be extremely hurtful for him anyway to hear that language. How how was that navigated? Well, it was a very specific navigation in that you know there was a point where the danger was that the language of the play was the language we were adopting. And I remember a moment when we just had to stop and say, look, deformity as, you know, in in Shakespeare's day in the Elizabethan period, and, and Francis Bacon wrote a famous essay, relating deformity of body to deformity of mind and we had to be careful that we were not that we were talking about a disability not a deformity which has that pejorative overtone and and that was that was a very interesting um moment to just just correct our our language and to make sure that we 
And it did. It tested the play and it tested our reactions to to some of the play. Mm. But there were moments where the characters who spoke that language, our, our reaction to them became more complex and, and yeah. contradictory. And, yeah. and that's one of the great things about Shakespeare, isn't it? That, that's the, that actually one of the things that makes him great is that he captures our contradiction. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And makes it, that's what makes it so, so real and recognisable. <laughs> You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and with me today, Greg Doran. Greg, um, do you have sympathy for Richard then? Because when I um, when we did our production, uh, directed by our artistic director Peter Evans, Kate, who played Richard, and she was also the dramaturg on the production, kind of sneakily ended it with a speech from Henry VI, Part Three, where Richard says, "I have no brother. I'm like yes. no brother." And this word, love, yeah. which which Greybeard's called divine, I, I be resonant men like one another, but not me. I am myself alone. Was the last words of the production, and you know, I know that you visited the Richard III Visitor Center in Leicester, where they're sort of trying to rehabilitate his reputation as a historical king rather than as Shakespeare's villain. Did you find that you had sympathy for Richard when you went into this production? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we did. Um, um, because of, as it were, what he has suffered. I, I found it really interesting that the, the, the Richard III Society have been, over the years, have been the, the fierce bane of anybody trying to put on Richard III. And, and, and Tony sure. had a had a very, very fierce letter from, from somebody saying, oh, you're yet another actor to perpetrate the myth of this good and great king for the sake yes. of your own ego, you know, sort of thing. Yes. Uh, it was an interesting thing because the, Philippa Langley from the Richard III Society who initiated the, the, the search for Richard's body in the Leicester Cup, mm. an extraordinary, tenacious, brilliant woman, though I think entirely misrepresented in the recent film, I think she scored a home goal, actually, because mm. I think they were expecting that the, that R Richard's disability, the the, the early onset adolescent uh, scoliosis, mm. that that was a Tudor myth that you know it was a bit yeah. of Thomas More making it up to degrade the Plantagenet line in favour of the Tudor line. So therefore, when they discovered that the body had a pronounced twisted spine i mean it's a corkscrew yeah. the exhibition is is brilliant in the in the way yeah. that it has replicated in 3d printing if you like it's replicated yes. the spine but it's also interesting in that um having discovered and having to acknowledge that he was indeed disabled both arthur and i came out of the of the museum and there is a statue of richard that was put up by the Richard III Society, just outside the cathedral, which is mm. opposite the museum. It's an extraordinary, it looks like Henry V, except he's got a kind of long hair. It's a sort of heroic, heroic sort of, of, this, yeah, of yeah. this, you know, perfectly formed uh, young man. And they are saying that this is actually the Richard III. We should be thinking about, well, now they should take that statue down because mm. they should mm. now put up the statue, however um, culpable or blameless they think he was, he was a disabled man and had yes. a you know a visible disability and they should yeah. re replace the statue as a result of that and and and, yeah. and indeed if they're going to acknowledge the the good things that richard did they should also acknowledge that it was a disabled man who did it um yes and and that i think is a is the next step in that discussion um mm. but it does it, at the same time it does feel to me as though 
you know, there's a smoking gun right next to Richard III. I mean, I think <laughs> the evidence is that he did murder the princes in the tie. He might not mm. have murdered his brother Clarence, um, oh, but you know, he's he did get rid of Hastings and most of Queen Elizabeth's family. So, <laughs> no, no, no doubt. Not a good. Uh, but this, but this also goes to the heart of history versus drama, and obviously Shakespeare looks at history and then says, well, what do I need um, in order to serve my dramatic purpose and dramatic intent? So it's hard to, you know, do that historical research and then try and fit it into Shakespeare's play because often the two things are serving different purposes, right? Exactly right. I mean, and he's he's not writing a documentary, you know. He's, right, exactly. He's using history as both a prophecy and a, and a warning, you know. He's mm-hmm. And he's also writing a sequence. So if you look at having now finished the sequence, there's – you, you, you look at Richard II and there is somebody who has an inflated sense of his own divine right to, to rule. You follow yeah. that with the usurper Henry IV, the, the warrior king Richard, the, the Henry V, um, the saintly but weak king Henry VI, and then you mm. need a villain mm. at the end of it. So there's a, there's a <laughs> partly Richard is, is, if he's looking at a spectrum of, of how we are governed and, and what we want from governments, then that he's creating difference within his kings and possibly heightening those as, as well. I remember doing Henry IV, yeah. um, and, a, and an expert on, on Henry IV said Henry IV was a better king than Henry V, and Shakespeare right. is, is, is responsible for downgrading Henry IV and <laughs> digging up Henry V, who wasn't that great after all. <laughs> uh, yeah, although even in Henry V, he can't help himself and undermines him uh, at a couple of moments. Um, you know, There's a bit of a war criminal the, uh, action towards the end, his rejection of Falstaff and so on. Yeah. Greg, do you remember, is there a time you can remember before you knew about Shakespeare? Where, where did it start for you? Was it a teacher? Was it school? Who, who lit that flame for you? Well, it was my dad by default. Dad had been brought up very, very, very working class background in, in, in Scotland had always had a sense of curiosity and loved classical music, didn't know anything about it, but bought himself a box set of, I think it was Beethoven symphonies, but along with the box set came a little 45 RPM record of the incidental music from Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, There were extracts performed by uh, American actors in in between the music. And Mm. I just remember being taken into this story of... Of, uh, of, a, of a haunted magical wood and fairies and <laughs> a man who gets put in, you know, has a donkey's head put on his head and and I couldn't <laughs> believe this sort of how how marvelous this 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 was, yeah. you know, and 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 that that's what grabbed me. And then I was lucky enough that my my I was brought up. We were a Catholic family, and my my uncle was a, a Benedictine abbot, and oh. I was brought up by the Jesuits. And the Jesuits mm-hmm. at the college I was at did a Shakespeare play every year, and right. yeah. it was an all boys' school, so the boys played the, the girls. I missed out on. Yeah. In 2A, went to gag uh, Ronson Rotty's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> where is he now? <laughs> and uh, but I got Lady Anne and Richard III, funnily enough, in the third form. And when we opened Richard III in Stratford uh, this year on the uh, press night, 
flight, which is always, as you will know, of course, a nervous evening of yeah. you know people trying to focus on just doing the play as well as they can. And um, so to kind of break the ice a bit, I showed Rosie Sheehy, who was playing Lady Anne, a photograph of myself playing her role. Amazing. <laughs> 50 years before, whatever it was. And, and she said that raised the bar rather high. So, yeah, so. <laughs> I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. And then that was it. Then you went to, to drama school. You started as an actor. But was there a point where you said, well, I've had enough of this acting stuff. I, I really want to look at the whole process and, and direct. I think I'd already kind of got that one sorted because I, though we did a Shakespeare play every year at school, I, that wasn't enough for me. So I got my friends, my mates together in the summer and we put on a Shakespeare play, first of all, in a in an old stately home in Chorley in Lancashire. And of course, in order to put it on and, and play Malvolio, of course, I, I basically directed it. And that's, so, so I had always both directed and acted in a, in a way. And then I thought I should focus on just one. And then I read a piece of Flaubert who says, most people end up in life doing what they do second best. And I the trick is to know what you do first, first, and to do it. And I thought, that's And I thought there are a lot of you know, young men, floppy-haired young men who could play the parts that I was being given. And I did just want to see the whole, the whole mm. thing, really, the whole, mm. whole experience. Well, I mean, it's been an extraordinary career so far, obviously, and continues. But the, the Royal Shakespeare Company, I mean. You, you are out there in the public eye. People in the public feel an ownership over your company and they feel like they can comment on it and, and tell you how to do your job. When Michael Boyd was was appointed in 2002, he said the ensemble is absolutely uh, central to the identity of the RSC. Uh, when you were appointed 10 years later, you said, I'm not going to focus so much on the company, I'm going to focus on the Shakespeare. So what did you what did you mean by that? And And what do you think the identity of the company is now 10 years later i think both michael and i were hijacked by the same journalist with that one question you know uh, uh, put these three letters in order rsc which is the most important oh. and he chose c c for company and right. and and the focus on the ensemble as you say and i guess i said well and no, to me, the most important word is the is the S, is the Shakespeare. And and the sense that what's very interesting is I wanted there to be more people who were given their voice, you know, were, were allowed, you know, in a way people feel intimidated by Shakespeare. Depends often yeah. depends how you, you got him at school, how you did him yeah. at school, um, mm -hmm. as to whether you're grabbed by him. And one of the things that's most important for me, and I was important about the Julius Caesar, was that if theatre holds a mirror up to nature and you don't see yourself reflected in that mirror, then mm. why should you engage with it? And so I yes. think creating, you know, not just not just diversity in terms of ethnicity on the stage, but in terms of disability, in terms of regionality, in terms of gender. Yeah. That had felt very important to me. But if you were kept a, a single company as a sort of ensemble to grow that, though that has huge benefits, you also reduce the number of people who, who get a bite at the chair. Of chicken. course, of course you do. Yeah. And, yeah. and that included directors. And it can, you know, when I began as an, as an actor in the company, you could count the number of women who directed for the RSC on, on 
one hand. And by the time, you know, I was sort of five years in, not that we made any sort of big noise about it, but that summer season was directed in the Swan and the Main House, uh, the RST here in Stratford. All of the plays were directed by women. Mm -hmm. And that was just an organic growth. It wasn't an actual sort of programming decision. And it, it felt to me as though once you really open that up and, and genuinely mean that Shakespeare is for everyone, then yeah. then you will get so many more perspectives. I saw that thing in the paper about a sense of the the arguments for decolonizing the curriculum in, in, in yes. Auckland recently. Um, yeah, yep, that's and, right. I saw that, yeah. And, and that yeah. felt to me as though, you know, that, that, was, that was very familiar. I remember that happening in Joburg around about the time, in fact, that the, the Nelson Mandela, Robin Island, Shakespeare was sort of re-remembered. I think we've got to take that head on. Yeah, there's a kind of universalizing dogma that says Shakespeare is the greatest writer ever. And I have mm, to think mm. he probably is. Yeah. <clears throat> but you also may, have, you know, one of the things I've, I've tried to do is to make sure that there are other voices in the curriculum, in the, in the programming yeah. rather, in the, in the pot. Um, yeah. And we, you know, we, we looked at some of the great Chinese classics, which, you know, we'd never done in the, in the mm -hmm. West as such, certainly not the Royal Shakespeare Company. <clears throat> and doing plays like the Orphan of Zhao and and Snow in Midsummer, and, and in Snow in Midsummer we had a, an entirely British um, Asian cast, and and that was a really important moment. You know, we we did a Tartuffe um, set in a contemporary Tartuffe set in Pakistani Muslim community in Spark Hill in Birmingham, and it was a riot because <clears throat> as a play that criticizes. The Catholic Church, essentially, through mm. the hypocrite Tartuffe. This was yeah. kind of tackling hypocrisy in any religion, whether that's yeah. Christian, yeah. Muslim, or mm -hmm. whatever. I thought yeah. that was a really important um, piece to to do. If I said that for me it was Shakespeare rather than ensemble, it was a, it was partly about making sure that everybody was engaged. You know, in the, yeah. the Henry VI we just did. We decided rather than to do the smallest cast we could possibly get away with, we had the biggest cast and we used mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our community engagement program. So there were people who were from all over the country in, 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 in our regional theatre partner groups and, yeah. and next generation kids who are from deprived backgrounds in, in, in the UK. And there were 151 of them in that production. And it was wow. just a great, yeah. a great opportunity for people who never thought Shakespeare was for them to just yeah, try, right. try it and yeah. see. It's so crucial, isn't it? And you have obviously an extensive education program, as we do here, reaching out, especially to young audiences and young audiences and young people are more and more diverse in our communities and they need to see themselves yeah. uh, reflected up on our stages uh, and uh, you know obviously what we say to them and what we hope to show them is that Shakespeare understands us as human beings and 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 trying to break down that idea that Shakespeare is kind of this colonizing influence um, uh, and uh, sort of a symbol of British power yeah. but it, it's a debate that we continue to have especially here in Australia because you know there's some segments of indigenous population who will say no way I'm, I don't want to engage with that and then there are some who take it and reappropriate it and make it their own and translate it into their own languages so so it's a live issue I think around the world. I think yeah. that's right. I mean, I, I've been doing a 
we're calling it the Folio Roadshow, which is next year being the, the 400th anniversary of the publication of the first folio of all Shakespeare's yeah. plays after his, seven years after his death. And there are 235 copies of the first folio uh, extant in the world, as far as we know. There, mm-hmm. there were probably 750 printed, so I bet there are still another 500 out there that we don't Yeah, use. there's somewhere, aren't yeah, there? <laughs> there are. But you have one in Sydney, and, and there is yes, one in Auckland, yes. and there is one in Cape Town, and they are the only three in the Southern Hemisphere. The Southern Hemisphere, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Two of them were given by the same colonial governor, one to Cape Town and one to Auckland. And that fascinates me because, you know, the instinct behind it is somehow a kind of, this will, this is for your betterment. This will um, civilize your yeah, population, yes. yeah, and and that that is to be challenged, and but that Absolutely. doesn't mean yeah. that the plays themselves aren't and and, and the, what's contained, the humanity that's contained within them isn't shouldn't be you know available to everybody, but yeah, so it's a, it's it becomes contentious around that very book and the, and it's spread yeah. around the world, I think. Yeah, yeah, the book itself gets fetishized, doesn't it? It's, it, does. Uh, it does. Well, well, Henry, well, Henry Folger was obsessed. He's got he he collected how many eighty five. I've been watching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. <that's greedy. laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Greg, you're coming to, well, you, you have um, wrapped up your time as artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Now you're known as the artistic director emeritus, at least until the end of next year. Then what's, what's in the future for you? What, what, what do you think you'll do? I, I, to be really honest, I don't yet know. I, I was anticipating at the end of 23, stepping down anyway, but um, I wasn't, I didn't know that my, that Tony was, was, was uh, yeah. ill and going to die. And so that was a sort of double whammy, really, of kind of coming to the end of the RSC, passing that on, very happy that that is Daniel Evans and, and Tamara Harvey are going to take over mm-hmm. from me. Mm-hmm. At the same time as going, Tony and I spent, you know, 35 years being G&T, and I've just got to work out what G means, and I don't quite know what that is yet. But it is, Shakespeare's very, he always has a quote, doesn't he? Um, but mm-hmm. he helped, I have to say, in in when when in coming to terms with, with the loss. Mm-hmm. I remember if people would say, um, you know, he'll be there in the breeze, or he'll be in the, you know, lapping of the waves, and I would go... That's just not true, is it? And I remember mm-hmm. Tony asking Lear at the end of the play with Cordelia, his daughter, her, her dead body in his arms. And he says, Thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. And I remember thinking at the time, why is he repeating never quite so many times? And now yeah. I know, because he's trying to comprehend what the f- reality of the fact that I will never see him again, what that actually yeah. means. So it's bleak, that realisation, and it's more comforting to think he might be, you know, in the waves and in the leaves and all the rest of it. But to me, getting on with life is, it's it's better knowing that his legacy is is still there and yes. the love the love remains. Um, yes. But that it's, it is somehow, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, thankfully Shakespeare is there to give us the words when words fail. Isn't that extraordinary? And at every stage of your life, something else is unlocked for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I remember, I've, I've said it on this program before, when my 
father passed away, suddenly I heard the words, um, he was a man, take him for all in all, I shall never look upon his like again. And it, it just hit me. I've heard that so many times and it just hit me so hard, understanding what that meant truly for the first time. It's like Shakespeare sees us and understands us through every stage of our life. That's right. And he's just waiting yeah. for the moment when we have the experience that somehow we will find the words that he has already That's right. to say yeah. what off was thought but ne'er so well expressed. Yeah. Greg, it has been such such a pleasure talking to you today. But just before we wrap up, we have something called the final five. I've got five quick questions, five quick answers. Here we go. Greg Doran, are you the lover, the villain, or the fool? Well, having just talked about a love affair of 35 years, that attorney, mm. I guess I would hope that I'm the lover, but I suspect I'm probably the fool. <laughs> <laughs> what is your most underrated Shakespeare play? I think it has to be Timon of Athens, actually. I think Timon is, oh, yeah. is a great play of the moment. And it talks mm. about there's a one, the most extraordinary and modern line is where uh, the, the cynic says to the misanthrope uh, who has rejected the world, he says, the middle of humanity thou never knewest, just the extremities of both ends. And you kind of go. That's mm, like mm. that's like any kind of rock star who has you know burnt out and yes, has, that's has right. never lived in the middle, but has always lived at extremes. Who's an artist you'd love to work with still who you haven't worked with already? You've worked with Dame Judy, Simon Callow, Patrick Stewart. Who, who's who's left? Ah, oh, cracky. Well, so many people. I mean, and there are people who we I keep on go, we keep on sort of meeting and saying we must do this. And I'd love to work mm. with Juliet Stevenson. I've never worked with. I'd love to work with. I've never worked with McCallan, though. We've come close a, a few times. Oh wow. Um, and uh, yeah, no, but there is there are so so many um, great actors. I'd, I'd I'd love to, I'd love to work with. Hard to name one. Yeah, yeah. Which Shakespeare play still? at the top of your bucket list to direct? Well, it's got to, as, as I've only really got one left, um, it, it's the one we're doing next, <laughs> That's which, it. Is, which is Cymbeline, yeah. yeah. Cymbeline, you've it's never done, you've never done a Cymbeline. Done it, no, and uh, it is a, Thomas Hardy called Shakespeare a bright, baffling soul, and my goodness, is Cymbeline a bright, baffling play? But it's a beautiful play, and, and uh, I can't wait to get started on that. And if you weren't an artist, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, cracky, that's a really hard one. <laughs> a gardener. Somebody yeah. working, you know, building gardens. That would be nice. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Greg, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. James, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow us on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review our podcast through your listening platform. <laughs>